And then the first thing we do is we, we go through the negatives, we unpack them, we try to define how we're going to solve it and how we're going to solve it consistently. And then we go through the positives and we try to learn from these things like, okay, this is what we did well. Welcome to another episode of the Peak Performance Selling Podcast, where we interview top sellers and sales leaders to learn the different tips, tricks, and mental strategies that they use to create sustainable peak performance. Let's get rolling. Welcome to today's edition of the Peak Performance Selling Podcast. Today, I'm incredibly excited to welcome on Jeroen Kortout, who's co-founder and CEO of Salesflare, an intelligent CRM built for SMBs selling B2B, mostly popular with agencies and fast-growing startup companies. As I've had a chance to check them out and learn a little bit more, it's a really interesting approach to helping folks humanize sales. Salesflare was founded when Jeroen and his co-founder Levin wanted to follow up the leads for their software company in an easier way. They didn't like to keep track of them manually and built Salesflare, which pulls customer data together automatically and then actively helps you to follow up. It's now the most popular CRM on Product Hunt, which is pretty cool, and top rated on review platforms like G2 Crowd for its ease of use and automation features. It's it's really exciting for me to be able to have this conversation because so frequently I talk to people about how most sales tools weren't built to actually help sellers. And that's one of the things that adds in a lot of stress, a lot of friction, a lot of challenges in actually performing well in sales. And so to see tools like this starting to come up and really grow is because we actually have tools that help humanize sales, that help bring it into a space where we can actually sell better. So Yudarun, I'm really excited to invite you on and learn more about your story. Welcome on to the show. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be here. So I'd always love to start out understanding your sales journey. I've seen that you've you know worked through a bunch of different organizations, leading, driving growth, running the organization. And so talk to me about how'd you end up in the sales space and talk to me a little bit about how, how you got to where you're at today. I guess I always, I, I actually personally studied engineering. So I, I come from a totally different direction, but I always like to, to build stuff and then get them to people and create value that way. And I never really liked the, the pure engineering work. Even before, at some point I, when I was a teenager, I had a sort of web design company where I was, I was building stuff, but it was, it was not so much about the building for me, which was cool, but it's more about like, what it does for people. And at some point I had a, like a secondhand cell phone little business uh, when I was a student. And then actually after engineering, when I started applying for jobs, they wanted me to become all this kind of boring stuff where I would just spend my time behind a computer. I, I didn't want that. And after a lot of these interviews, I, I decided to do business school. And then I actually ended up in a marketing position because I figured that was the best way for me to, to, to learn how to put a product in the market and all that. And that was in pharma because I studied biomedical engineering. And actually, the funny thing is most people in pharma get into this position. They need to go through sales. But I somehow skipped it, which then everybody found weird. But then I actually didn't do that long because it was an extremely boring thing to do. I, I didn't really have a lot of responsibility, like a lot of freedom and possibility to change things. I, I was just basically taking the brochures that the International, I, it was a Baxter, Baxter International had made. I was, I was translating that and, uh, and I, was, uh, I, was, I was making sure that the salespeople know how to use it. 
But then afterwards, I switched to a marketing consultancy where I became an account manager. And there I was helping pharma companies to become more digital. And that's where I, I, I learned most of what I know today about sales. Because there I did sales, like the whole thing, from finding leads, approaching them, booking meetings, listening to their issues, uh, making proposals, making budgets to closing, you know, following up everything. I was fully responsible for a customer. And that was that was a really great experience to from there then also use in later businesses and software products and all that. What an awesome journey. I know that HubSpot, where I spend a lot of time hearing some of our sales leadership team actually started in engineering, brought such a unique perspective into the mix versus the folks that have not come from the builder's background that aren't looking at, you know, how do they break down problems and solve them and actually have the ability to create things. And so taking that journey to bring a different perspective to how do you come in and actually, you know, live a lot of your life today around helping sellers perform better and work and operate better in their organizations is a really, really great perspective to bring that I think brings a lot of diversity of thought to the table. That's a really, really cool story. Yeah. I, I, to be honest, I, I studied engineering, but if you ask me now, I, I don't know that much about it anymore. Like my dad is this kind of hardcore engineer and sometimes he says something and then he's like, you study that, right? And I'm like, sure, I think I did. Yeah. But it does give me uh, some background to go deeper in conversations, especially when it's about technical things. I can like understand that as well, which then I don't have to say like, oh, this is a question for the tech guys or something. No, I, I also get it. So that, that, that helps. But apart from that, yeah, I guess the, the mindset, the, the way of thinking is helpful somehow, but that's probably about it. Uh, re- really interesting. And so talk to me a little bit about how you now show up and manage your teams and manage the folks internally as you're setting goals, as you're working to drive the growth of your organization today. How are you thinking about that? And what approach do you like to take as you think about, you know, maybe setting goals or getting the team involved and motivated and engaged to keep working? You know, I know being in the tech space creates a lot of challenges, a lot of things you have to work through. And so talk to me a little bit about, you know, how do you guys approach growth? How do you think about sustaining that growth and really pushing forward through it? Yeah, for us, it's yeah, you, you were talking about goals. We we have goals, but we don't focus completely on this numeric goal. Of like, this is what we want to reach end of year, because we saw that if we do that, it's hard to be motivated. It's hard to reach these things as well. What we do at the beginning of the year is we transform these, these end goals into things we're going to do on a consistent basis. And then we know exactly what we have to do. And on a daily or weekly basis or monthly, you can check these things off and say, okay, I've, I've, I've done what I needed to do. And if we consistently stay at that, then in the end, we'll see that we reach our goals or even overshoot them. And we call that habits instead of goals. I actually also have an article on that. If you, if you type sales quota, sales player in uh, Google, I think, maybe, maybe it ranks for sales quota already, I don't know. You'll find an article about the different ways in which you can put sales quota where I make the point that it's very nice to have this sort of output level sales quota, like this is the amount of revenue we're going to have in a year, but that doesn't help help you to achieve it. So you need some sort of input level sales quota or something in between to make that happen. 
That's great. I'm a big fan of James Clear, who wrote the book Atomic Habits. And he talks so much about how it's the system that you're running. It's the things that you actually do that lead to the result. And so I I think that's so so nicely aligned. And funny. That's actually partly what what inspired us to do this. I was reading this book. So I was combined like I saw what you did the previous year and I saw that what worked is where we have great habits and and where where like we didn't reach our goals where is where where we didn't have that consistent input. And it was like very much like sometimes we did something and we and then we stopped and then you know. And then I read that book and I was like, oh yeah, that's true. And then and then I was at the moment that we were setting our our, uh, our strategy for the year. And then we, we try it and it actually works. Second year now that we do it. That is awesome. Can you give us a couple examples of what those goals might, or what those habits and tasks might look like that ultimately lead to the outcomes that you guys are driving towards? We, we, we do this all the way throughout the company. So like, for instance, we create like X features a month, improve our onboarding, which is what we call it when you like improve the, the way people get on the software and then, and our help to all well, to understand it and to use it and stuff. That the number of SEO articles we create, the number of uh, backlinks we get for articles, the number of times we are visible externally, you know, all these kind of things. We all have like habits and we keep track of it. And we see that we deliver this consistent input and in the end we'll, we, we we lower our churn, we up our uh, conversion and the amount of trials we have. That's our, <laughs> how it works for us. It's very much like this, this uh, inbound funnel in which we need to get as much in as possible at the beginning and then up the conversion uh, in all the different spots. And then when we have subscribers, lower the churn. The important SaaS metrics as always. I, I love that. You did mention that, you know, there was a year that you'd set the goals and, and you didn't hit them. And I find that that happens a lot in sales, but that's something that most people don't talk about. Most of the conversation is always around who blew out the number, who absolutely, you know, went above and beyond, even though maybe the month prior they, you know, they had a terrible selling month. And so how do you guys bounce back from those tough times when maybe you didn't get to the output that you wanted or or you're not in that desired identity or state that you would like to be? How do you bounce back? What things do you do to reset and get yourself ready to come back and show up great that next day? Yeah, first of all, I think the important thing is to acknowledge that it's not going well. Step number one, uh, what we do then is uh, we sit together with the team we think about solutions. We think what's going wrong. Like we unpack the problem. And then we think like, okay, how can we then fix this specifically? Again, that's also something we do all across the company in all different aspects of it. So we even have like a, a general team meeting every two weeks where we say, okay, what's going well? What's, what's not going well? It might be that the sales are behind. It might be that something went down. It might be that... Some internal communication is now running really smoothly or that some customer is disappointed or whatever. We have like our negatives and then we have the positives, what went well. And then the first thing we do is we, we go through the negatives, we unpack them, we try to define how we're going to solve it and how we're going to solve it consistently. And then we go through the positives and we try to learn from these things like, okay, this is what we did well. 
And then afterwards, by the way, we still have a demo moment. Like everybody can show off what they've done in the last two weeks. It's a, it's a nice moment and time for feedback as well. That's great. I love the, you know, what went well and what can we improve on mentality and approach. Uh, as I, I, I've heard that a few places, and I think that's a great way because it's so easy to get lost in the negative, in the bad things that are happening, and not recognize that even though, yeah, maybe we missed a number here. Maybe we didn't get to the place that, that we had hoped to based upon the inputs we were putting in. There were still a lot of other good things that happened around that. And being able to take that time and celebrate even what may feel like little victories, I think it is really critical. Yeah, definitely. And so for yourself as a, a leader, you know, what do you do to make sure that you can show up your best day in and day out? You know, what routines maybe do you have? I, I see for the folks that, that are all audio, he, he's got a great bike behind him back there. So what are some of the things that you do to help make sure that you can show up the best for, for yourself, for your team, for your family? What habits or routines do you have there for yourself? Exercise is, is definitely important. I'm going, you know, biking, I'm running. You know, the bike is there more for my wife. I exercise every two days. Try to sleep eight hours a night, which is, I think, even more important than the exercise. It really helps you to be sharp, not have a fuzzy mind and feel like you need to eat crap and have an unstable mood and, you know, all these kind of things. Some good sleep is really, really essential. And since since beginning of this year, I also started watching my food. I switched to this kind of whole foods, plant-based uh, diet. My wife said, says to everyone that I'm vegan, but it's uh, not necessarily vegan. It just sounds that like I don't want to eat animals anymore. That's not the point. But it's, uh, it's, it's really about health there to lower the chance that you get sick and to up your well-being. In terms of mindfulness, I'm I'm very often on with the with the meditation. I don't really have a routine there. Sometimes my wife likes to turn it on before bed if it's been like a, a stressful day or something, and she needs to unwind. I personally don't really need it. I think after now seven years of uh, leading Salesflare, we've seen enough ups and downs that they they seem like minor blips to me. Yeah, it's it's training also. Uh, yeah, I think that is so powerful after you go through having some of the experience to realize that things start to normalize. You know, it's not going to be the most catastrophic thing ever. You've bounced back. You've run into these challenges. You've seen these things happen to say, okay, well, how do we now solve this? What's going well? What are our issues? How do we now tackle this as a team? It is really interesting for me to hear as I think many sellers especially early on in their career, get this very up and down. The the highs are very high and the lows are very low. And a lot of sellers that I talk to is they can start to even those out a little bit and maintain that consistency or stoicism, which is becoming super popular these days. Oh, yeah. I, I've read now, a few books about stoicism as well. Actually, I have nice. the, the, um, the daily stoic next to my bed, but I sort of gave up after a month or two, I think. Ah, all right. I, you know, I think this is powerful, though, because there is this challenge to think about how do we actually create ourselves? How do we define that life that we want to live, that we see the opportunity with? And uh, I love a lot of the concepts in the stoicism philosophy that help 
you know, take responsibility for what you can control in some of those other areas. I'm curious, has anything stood out for you from what you've learned there or what you've been paying attention to? Uh, that, that's definitely, I think, some of the essence there, what you said. The stuff you can control and the stuff you can't control. It doesn't, doesn't make sense to have your mind be busy with stuff you cannot control anyway. Another one is uh, to think about the worst thing that can happen. And then visualize that and then think like, it's probably not going to be hap- going to happen. And whatever, whatever state we might land in in between is fine. And we'll try to avoid it, but it's, you know, we need to sort of accept that it might happen. I think next to uh, stoicism, investing in crypto can also really help. Even if, uh, if, you, if you've been through a few dips there also, you know how it feels. It makes you stronger. Are you ready to commit and take your performance and fulfillment to the next level? Check out My Core OS, where we work with sales leaders and teams to take their performance to the next level by creating championship operating systems and cultures with live Zoom workshops, one-on-one trainings, mindfulness for sales, and more. Check us out at MyCoreOS.com. That market definitely has a lot of volatility with those high ups and downs. You know, we're, we're just hoping it, it keeps going up. <laughs> you know, it, it is uh, it is interesting, though, as you push yourself into these new areas, as you start looking at different challenges, different opportunities to learn, it it is really powerful to put yourself outside of your comfort zone. And, and I think that is something that, you know, you look at that worst case scenario is, Typically, that's when you're trying to do something new when you're like, oh, I'm a little scared that this might not work or this might not be there. But I talk to so many people in sales, especially that maybe you're afraid to ask for the money or, uh, you know, close the deal. And the worst thing that happens is somebody says no. And that's not too bad. You know, maybe you miss your, uh, you know, income target, your revenue target, your quota, whatever it could be. But the worst thing that happens is you're still alive. You still have the ability to bounce back. You still have the ability to learn from it. But so many people, you know, see those as catastrophic failures because that's what our brain has been programmed to see around keeping us safe, you know, around being afraid that, oh, if we don't make the money that we hope to make, we're not going to be able to have food to eat. We're not going to be able to have shelter. All these things that are very unlikely in today's day and age as a whole. And so I, I love hearing you think about, yeah, let's visualize that worst case scenario, accept that that may be a possibility and still have the courage and bravery to push through it is where I think so many of us grow. And I, I love that little exercise that you mentioned there. No, no I actually, I read something related. I'm, I'm reading the book is called The Psychology of Money. It's a book about investing. The thing I read this morning was like the guy was saying, like, if you are pessimistic about something, people are way more likely to uh, consider you intelligent than when you're optimistic about something. When you're optimistic about something, people are like, yeah, sure. <laughs> but if you're pessimistic about something, they'll listen. Exactly because of the things you said, like we are programmed to stay safe, right? So we are we are we are not more likely to to see the, the possibility of failure. We, it, it hurts more when we lose than, when we, than, than, than that we have fun when we win and all these kind of things. But just visualizing it and saying it's not that bad, that, that really helps. 
Man, that is an interesting one for me to think about because I am the fervent optimist in many cases. There are some areas where I struggle with that, but it makes so much sense that people are much more likely to listen to the skeptic. That starts to drive the engagement. That starts to drive the core of our humanity, of looking into that, you know, fear-based, how do we stay safe? How do we stay alive? Mindset that has had to keep us alive for so long. And so many people see the optimistic folks as, you're, you're not living in reality. You're not here in the real world. So I think that's really, really funny. And how do you all start thinking about the psychology of, of how you build these tools for sellers, you know, as you think about understanding the day in the life of a seller, the challenges they have, their habits that they're trying to build to drive success. How do you think about that psychology and the you know design of the product or, or how you guys try to build for the key things that sellers face as challenges or struggles? Yeah. Uh, so the, the the key struggle, first of all, we design for is, is people not being able to follow up consistently uh, because you imagine you have like a, a few tens or a few hundreds perhaps of leads and you need to follow up perfectly with all of them. Uh, at least that's what these people expect, right? And they all expect to be treated as if they're the, the only customer you're taking care of, only prospect. And that's hard unless you have a system. And that's, that's why a system like ours, a, a sales CRM, customer relationship management tool exists. And the core thing we do there is making sure that your system doesn't fall apart because that's what happens in most CRMs is you don't do the data input and that's very likely. (laughs) At least you you don't do the full data input. That's uh, almost 99% chance. That means that your system will start falling apart because if the data isn't there, the system doesn't know, you cannot see it in there, the system cannot help you, you know? And the whole the reason why you're trying to do this, it just doesn't work. But then in there, we also... So, well, just to complete the story, our, our, our system fixes that by pulling this information from all different places where it already is. And we've designed it to, well, like primarily do input automatically like where most systems are primarily manual and then maybe sync some information in. For us, it's the other way around. We've built something that is primarily automatic and you can adapt it manually because, I mean, you want to keep control, right? The, the thing is, we take most of the, the, the heavy work out of your hands so you can actually maintain the system and you can stay organized. Now, the main fear that people have there, uh, and that's that's personally why I'm so passionate about it, is uh, you can build better relationships, you don't disappoint people, and you don't lose out on, 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 on that many opportunities. All these great opportunities there and lost, you know, I just feel the pain there. We're, again, talking about the fear of loss, I guess, but that's just super painful. In there, what we try to do is we try to create an overview so that people have have much more of a sense of control. We also help people to to stay up to date in a very consistent like way. There's notifications in there with which you you're sure you you're on top of everything. You get it live, and we also sometimes gamify things a bit and uh, and try to make it nicer. And the thing we do, for instance, I talked about onboarding improvements earlier, is uh, when you get on the software. 
we noticed that for a lot of people, first of all, it's good to know what you, what you need to do when you get on the software. So I have this little guide that helps some people, but then a lot of other people will be like, yeah, sure. What we then started doing is we now give you seven days when you get on the trial. And then as you complete more steps in the setup process, which you need to do, but people don't always do, we give you extra days on the trial, which then really motivates people to go through it and, and, and complete the whole thing, which in the end makes them more successful. So it's also in their own good. We see really in our data that people who set up the, the, the program in a better way are way more successful. And then we also do this thing where if, you, if you're doing this as a team, for instance, like, uh, and you, Jordan, you complete one of the steps, then the rest of the team gets a notification that says, Jordan uh, did this, and he earned five days for the team, and then we got a little uh, you know, party thing next to it to keep the, the vibe going, you know. I love that. I think gamification is something that I got exposed to early on in, in my startup days that is fascinating to see how it plays out. And again, how it gets into the psychology of us as humans, uh, we are tribal. And if we have accountability to somebody else, it's going to drive our motivation up. If other people see that, oh, we, we just got rewarded for that, uh, people start to want to engage more. And ultimately, with the tools that you build, it, it makes it easier for folks to do their job. And I think in so many cases, the manual data entry are just such a waste of our brain power in today's day and age, where we can be using our brains so much more effectively and in such a more powerful way. So I love to hear taking some of those challenging aspects out of um, the sales day-to-day life so they can spend more time following up with the right people, engaging the right people. And I'm just so excited for this next future in sales, where the tools are really built for that seller, where historically they were maybe built for the executive vice president of sales, or they were built for the IT team saying, hey, you should move to the cloud, which was kind of a crazy concept a long time ago. Yeah, no, I think I think the tools were actually initially built for the salespeople. But then what, what usually happens in the software market is like the software uh, companies go where the money is, and that's usually with the bigger companies. Now, when you land in bigger companies and all of a sudden you're not selling to the end user anymore, you're selling to someone high up who has no connection with the end user. And it's all about the organization and nothing about the practical aspect for the people who are actually going to use it. And that's where then software often goes wrong. Like it, it starts off with the right intentions, but at some point like <laughs> it becomes this crazy system. Like all of a sudden you're working in SAP, you know. And so how do you prevent yourselves, especially as you're reading about the psychology of money and and how do we think about that as a business leader? Obviously, revenue is important. And so how are you thinking about managing that drive towards getting the bigger dollar value clients and sticking to your core intention of wanting to build this platform to make follow-up easier for sellers? Yeah, that's just a decision not to go to these huge companies. <laughs> that's 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 all. We do medium-sized companies, but we're not going to the enterprise ones because our software is not just not built for this kind of ultimate customizability, adapt workflows with custom objects and all this kind of stuff. Well, I mean, if if you go there, then you you're building Salesforce, and then you see that screens become generic, things become slower. Uh, things are not really for the end user anymore. It's really like more of a 
yeah, an organization play where developers can do stuff. No, I mean, that's not what we're building. That's just the reality. And we won't go there. Simple as that. That's perfect. I love hearing the conviction and the clear intention. I think if you know exactly what and who you're trying to solve for and what you're trying to accomplish, it makes it so much easier to figure out the inputs that you need to be focused on to keep your core focus aligned. And so a couple rapid fire questions that I love to ask here uh, of folks. First and foremost, do you, you already touched on this, so I think I know what you're going to say, but do you love winning or hate losing more? I hate losing more, I guess, yeah. I, I thought you might say that. Talk to me a little bit about some of the top qualities that you've seen, especially working across different industries and organizations, large and small. What are the top qualities that you see in leaders that you try to emulate or uh, look up to? Listening. It's super cliche, but uh, listening, empathy, trying to imagine what the other person, what the other person context, context is, is probably number one. Second, communication skills, being able to clearly explain something. That just makes communication so much more efficient, which is the basis for everything. That's probably number two. And then three, a willingness to learn and a willingness to improve. If you hire people that at first sight have that willingness, but then don't seem to have it, that's really one of the biggest disappointments ever. That That's mostly it on a personal level, I think. Uh, apart from that, it's also about... It's about building something between people, as they call it, culture, having a culture where these kind of things can live is extremely important. For instance, in your culture, if, you know, if, 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 if the separate people have a willingness to improve and learn, it still needs to be established on the, on the general level that there, this is an important thing and that we do that together because otherwise people will hold that back or they will get frustrated or something. Or in terms of communication, what we try to uh, stimulate, for instance, in our company is really like that everybody says what they think is wrong with things, which is part of this as well. So everybody can speak up and say, no, what we're doing here is bullshit or this is really bad. Or, and that just makes that, for instance, I'm not the only one who needs to go look for things that are bad. <laughs> People tell me and then I'm like, okay. Uh, let's let's do something about it. I I I don't know everything, so you know you need to unleash all of the the thinking that that is there in the company instead of trying to do it all yourself. Oh, there are such great points there, and I, I think as you mentioned, creating this foundation, creating this culture where everybody can share. You know, especially in, in the state size and stage where everybody can have that impact, where you're not going to see all of the details about every project or every single thing that's happening. So being able to really understand, hey, how do we get everybody the ability to communicate, to learn and improve, sets that foundation for everybody across the organization to now say, okay, here, here's how we can move forward. Here's how we can drive growth. And here's how we can continue to work towards you know, our, our habits and our desired outcomes of where we want to end up. I love that. And the last one that I, I always love to end on with folks is, what does success mean to you? Success on which level? Whatever that means to you, take it any way you want. There's no wrong answers. Yeah, okay. 
I would, I would, I would probably define success on um, if 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 you can make an impact for other people. That's 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 business success to me. It's seeing that you're offering. For instance, in our in our context, we're building a product. It's getting better. It's helping people connect better with their customers and sell more, uh, build these better relationships and stuff. When you can see that this is improving, that feels like success to me. Plus, this is done by a team. When I see that this team becomes more effective, that they become better people, they, that that even people who who left us are doing great, that they took that experience, that we're we're not just building a product we're also growing a team and and the the team is growing in the sense that i mean the the people in it are growing and then also sort of growing that those relationships around it like like growing a customer base that that feels like success to me i think that's so great you know beyond just building the product building the team helping people grow for themselves continue on through their career create a, a Further impact uh, across other people's lives is, is such a powerful thing. So, Yarun, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate the conversation. Where can folks find you? We can definitely link to the Salesflare website. You mentioned a blog post that I'll link to early on, thinking about sales quotas and, and how do you create habits and the right inputs versus just looking at the end output number. Where's a good place for folks to find you uh, and connect? For Salesforce, and it's in the Salesforce website. You can read all about the software, try it there. You know, with the seven days, that become many more days if you do stuff. And uh, if you want to get in touch with me, LinkedIn is the best place. You can send me a connection request. There's only one person with my name, so it's not too difficult to find me. But when you send me a connection request, please include a personal message. I get a ton of spam every day. And if you don't include a personal message, I will naturally assume it's spam as well. But if you do include a personal message, I will uh, I will get in touch with you and we can have a chat. Fantastic. Well, we'll get all that linked in the show notes. And I know it's later uh, in the afternoon, evening for you. So don't want to take more of your time. Thank you so much for joining us on the Peak Performance Selling Podcast. And until next time, let's go crush it. Yeah, this was fun. It's thanks to help from listeners like you. This podcast can continue to grow and help others. If you found anything helpful in today's episode, please take a second, share with a friend, and leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast today. Thanks. Thanks.